She is seductive. She is passionate. She is possessive. She is pure. Evil. She is Christine. A 1958 Plymouth Fury, possessed by hell. Her previous owner is not alive to warn her present one. Once she lures you behind the wheel, you will be hers, body and soul. There is no place you can hide, no place you can run, and nothing you can do can stop her. Because how do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? Christine. Body by Plymouth. Soul by Satan. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by a special guest this week, but I do not have my co-hosts. Johanna is out because she's buying a house, and Rosie's not here for a reason we'll get to it. But first, I want to introduce our guest this week. Bill Phillips has written around 50 screenplays. He won an ACE Award for Best Screenplay with John Carpenter for El Diablo, was nominated for an Edgar Award with Brian Dennehy for Shadow of a Doubt and adapted Peter Moss's In a Child's Name, which was nominated for an Emmy for Best Miniseries. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. This week is Halloween, so we're going to do a film by John Carpenter. I promised you all we would do a John Carpenter movie way back when we discussed Dark Star. I know when you think of Halloween and John Carpenter, the first movie that springs to your mind is the 1983 film Christine. So that's what we're going to be doing. Before we get into the film, we normally do a rundown of the years leading up to the film, important events that we think are important, but most people don't. (laughs) (laughs) So first, I want to start with 1955. Plymouth releases a sub-series of the Belvedere called The Fury as part of its new 56 model forward-look design which is an ironic name given that the most notable feature was at the back, large rear tail fins. In 1957, the 1958 model year Plymouth Fury is released with an optional big block 350 cubic inch Golden Commando 305 horsepower engine. The Fury was only available in one color, buckskin beige with gold anodized aluminum trim. So in the film, you'll see a lot of those coming down the um, the line at the beginning. 1960, Joseph and Mary Riley move into 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, Long Island, New York. If that address sounds familiar to you, afterwards, the house would become famous as the Amityville Horror House. Their daughter, Christine Belford, would grow up to play Regina Cunningham in Christine. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. You see, this is why we exist. These stupid little trivia facts that nobody cares about but us, right? <laughs> um, in, in 1961, actor Keith Gordon is born in New York City. Also that year, actor John Stockwell, yes, you know him better as Cougar from Top Gun, is born in Galveston, Texas. In 1963, actress Alexandra Paul who you know better as Lieutenant Holden from Baywatch, is born in New York City. Later, she will become as well-known for her hatred of big gas-guzzling cars as for acting. She's featured in the documentary Who Killed the Electric Car, being arrested and zip-tied for trying to stop GM from crushing her former electric vehicle. In 1964, the TV series The Twilight Zone kicks off the year with an episode called You Drive, about a man who commits a hit and run with his 1956 Ford Fairlane, and soon after he finds the car relentlessly pursuing him. In 1965, consumer activist 
Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, a scathing indictment of the audio industry is published. In 1967, in the summer, 19-year-old Stephen King sold his first story, The Glass Floor. It was published in the autumn 1967 issue of Startling Mystery Stories. In 1970, USC film student John Carpenter wrote, edited, and scored the Western The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. It wins the Academy Award for Best Short Subject. In 1971, the ABC Movie of the Week Duel is Steven Spielberg's second feature-length project starring Dennis Weaver as the driver of a Plymouth Valiant who is relentlessly per pursued by a Peterbilt 281 tanker truck with an unseen driver. In 1973, Stephen King writes the short story Trucks about a truck stop terrorized by murderous sentient trucks. He also has his first novel, Carrie, chosen for publication. King uses the $2,500 advance to buy a Ford Pinto. Uh, you know, Stephen King, he had something like 3,000 rejections. Um, and had, had thrown Carrie in the trash. And apparently Tabitha took it out of the trash and mailed it to somebody. And they I didn't know it. that. Yeah. Yeah. So Tabitha's sort of, you know, responsible for giving us Stephen King. <laughs> in 1976, Carrie is made into a film directed by Brian De Palma. To this day, it is one of only a handful of horror films to be nominated for multiple Academy Awards. In 1978, in February, Ford Motor Company is held liable for a death in the largest product safety case in U.S. history for knowingly selling the dangerous Ford Pinto. In August, three teens die in another Ford Pinto accident, kicking off another major lawsuit over the car, and Ralph Nader spearheads a movement to get Ford to make the largest safety recall in history. In 1979, CEO Lee Iacocca petitions for a $1.5 billion government bailout of the bankrupt Chrysler Corporation. For the first time, Chrysler's Dodge line overtakes Plymouth in sales. In 1980, Stephen King's third novel, The Shining, is made into a film directed by Stanley Kubrick. It opens the same weekend as The Empire Strikes Back, which it outgrosses. And also the film, The Hearse is released about a small town in Northern California terrorized by a mysterious black hearse. In 1981, Stephen King's novel Cujo is released. The plot involves a woman and her son menaced by a rabid dog while being trapped in a broken down Ford Pinto. Hmm. Hmm. In 1982, George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers released the album Bad to the Bone featuring the single of the same name, It Goes Gold. And in 1983, Harry Dean Stanton, who we talk about a lot on this podcast, begins work on his breakout film, his breakout film. He had been in a lot of films before that. Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas. His character, Travis, notably drives a 1958 Ford Ranchero whose front end styling looks not dissimilar to the 1958 Plymouth Fury. So there we go. A rundown of car related trivia facts from 1955 to 1983. <laughs> Go ahead. There's one thing that you didn't mention, um, not that it was a favorite of mine, but I, I became aware of it, and that is there was a TV show for a while called My Mother the Car. I've heard of it. And I think the car talked. Yeah, it was haunted by the ghost of, I, I think it was actually the guy's mother-in-law, but I'm not sure. It was haunted by a ghost and yeah. it, it it talked to him. Yeah, it was um, sort of the, the proto, uh, what was Hasselhoff show that where he, Knight Rider. <laughs> like where right. he had, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. enough about that. Let's jump in and talk about Christine. Bill, the first question I have for you is this novel came out in 1983 and the movie came out in 1983. So how did you become involved with this? And how, how long did you have to adapt this novel that's like over 500 pages long? Okay. Um, I think to tell the story correctly, I'd have to back up a little bit. Um, my agent 
David Gersh was also also John Carpenter's agent at the time. And John did The Thing, a remake of Howard Hawks' The Thing, which in retrospect, and I even thought it was great at the time, but it didn't do well at the box office. It took it took in one million dollars. It's hard to believe because it's considered one of his best films nowadays. Yeah. Right. But it opened the same day as E.T. It opened to do with it. Yeah. And there were a lot of films that opened in close succession around that time. I think that, um, yeah, there were a couple other really big ones that opened that weekend, if I recall. Go ahead. So um, my agent had the idea. Well, Bill is is his specialty is what they in Hollywood would call soft um, drama and soft means interpersonal it means you get to know the characters and and john of course is known for i i guess i don't i've never heard the term hard but but um for scares for jumps and he knows how to make people jump and so david thought maybe if i work with john you know i can kind of because the the thing was being criticized as being no pun intended but being cold course it also took place in alaska um <laughs> in and, antarctica antarctica yeah, actually yeah. yeah okay and and there's a whole hollywood thing about movies shot in snow that usually lose money in fact christine was written to take place in pennsylvania in the winter um, oh. but well we can talk about that in a second um so I I did a a spec not really a spec script John paid me for it but it was it was it was called Sea Story and it was it was about three people who decide to take a small boat from Provincetown Mass and sail to England and in the in the course of sailing they come across things like um, oil derricks. There was one in John Carpenter's pure John Carpenter scene where, you know, they they encounter the oil derrick, they get out, and there's a skeletal sort of man who has been surviving there, and he nearly kills them. And and anyway, it didn't get made, but we worked together well. And so, John said, "Well, I've got another film that that um, I'd like you to look at, and that is um, Firestarter." William Lancaster, who was the son of Burt Lancaster, did a draft, and it wasn't a bad draft, but John thought it could be more compelling. And so I tried it, and, you know, easy to say when things don't get made, say, oh, maybe that's the best thing I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will know whether it was or not, but we both felt it was, it was really good. John had what's called a pay-or-play deal, and people with clout in Hollywood have that. I mean, Brad Pitt, I think, probably has a $20 million payer play deal. That means we hereby guarantee to pay you $20 million if you will agree to do this script. And the pay or play means if we decide, we the studio decide not to do it, you still get your $20 million. You still get paid. Yeah. Yeah. John had a $1 million pay or play deal. And uh, Universal Studios decided that because there were four Stephen King adaptations out at in the movies at that point. And they weren't doing really well. They were doing okay, but I think they were competing with each other. Yeah. Just for our listeners, I uh, want to note that, that that year, 1983, Warner Brothers released Cujo, uh, Paramount released The Dead Zone, and uh, Columbia released uh, Christine. Yeah. Uh, okay. And so they said to John, if you can shrink this from a $27 million budget, which was in his contract, um, which was good for John because he was known as a uh, low budget director. If you can shrink it down to $9 million, we'll still let you do it. And John said, uh-uh, I'm going to buy myself a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so he did. He bought a, a Bell Jet Long, Range, Long Ranger helicopter. I think it was $975,000. Wow. And the change getting uh, lessons on how to fly it. And we would go out and fly down to, to uh, Orange County and get a hamburger for lunch, things like that. Wow. He later 
rented it because uh, the 1984 Summer Olympics were coming up. He rented it to the Olympic Committee and they used it. And I'm sure he got all of his money back from, from what he spent on purchasing it. Anyway, the movie didn't get made. My version didn't get made. They hired another writer, another director. I didn't watch it for five years because they had put back all the things that I wanted out of the movie. I didn't want it to be a pyrotechnical movie. You could get free pyrotechnics um, on television. Six million dollar man. Things were blowing up all the time. Uh, we did. We think. I think we did a little more clever, but it, ours didn't get made. We were going to have Richard Dreyfuss star in it. Um, didn't happen. So John called me a couple of days later and said, "Well, I've got another story. If you if you're interested, well, sure. What is it?" It's called Christine. It's about a car that kills people and repairs itself. And I was pretty skeptical. I said, nah, I don't know. That, that, that doesn't sound like anything I would want to do. And John said, well, that was my first reaction, but read the book. If you're willing to read the book, read it and let me know what you think. So he sent the book over. It wasn't yet in, in, in uh, galleys. It was, it was just in a pile of paper um, but he sent it over and I read I got about halfway through it and I called him I said I really like this this is really good and I did if you've read the book you notice that every chapter starts with a rock and roll quotation and that it was fun it was fun to read there was also a fellow named Michael Oakes and Michael Oakes is the brother of the late Phil Oaks. And, oh, yeah, the musician. Right. Yeah. There was a time when Phil Oaks and, and Bob Dylan, I think, were kind of neck and neck as far as fame goes. And, and Phil killed himself. Michael went on to have a huge library. In fact, it got to the point where networks, studios, and public, you know, music publishers would send him everything that they made just so there would be a, a an archive of everything and so we rapidly learned about michael and said michael uh, i've got about 12 spots in this movie that require some music can can you help us and he was great uh and like i he'd say i i, I would say do you have something by you know by the platters and name, name a song he said well do you mean the, the 1953 version the 1957 version by so and so and he and within 60 seconds he would have a needle drop on he he would in his huge house he knew how to get everything he would he was great so that was a lot of fun that's not usually what any writer ever gets to do is work with music but that was part of part of my job and that was fun so john said well okay uh, they're waiting for this movie. They're, we're ready to shoot it uh, as soon as we get a script. So I wrote the script in 60 days. I don't usually work that fast, uh, although this was my first my first produced feature. I had written a TV movie, and the first draft, it was only 60 pages long. The first draft was um, uh, about 30 days and another 30 days to write the second draft. But it, it wasn't for anyone. It wasn't. It ended up starring Myrna Loy and Henry Fonda, and that's what got got me an agent and got me noticed. And what so, was the title of that? Uh, Summer Solstice. Summer Solstice. And there was there was a the fellow, what is his name? Um, the guy who ran the gossip column in Daily Variety um, would have you know who who's doing what where, and he said. Hank Fonda's in Cape Cod doing summer solstice, whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and that was very, it was very well received. And of course, it was it was Henry's and Myrna's both their last film they did. So I had sixty days. I think the film would have been better if I had had ninety days, but I have no complaints. Um, I didn't usually, and writers, depending on the writer's relationship with the director, some writers are invited to the set and some are invited not to come to the set. <laughs> uh, John was very secure 
uh, I was always invited, but I was busy because when you're when you're working is the best time to get other work. So when you're working, everybody's making offers to you. Right. Uh, so I didn't go very often, but I went a few times. And one of the times I went, Robert Prosky, who played Darnell, the guy who owns the um, the shop but where Arnie fixes up Christine. Uh, he he was quoting things from the book that I had left out, and they were very colorful, often off you know off color colorful. Yeah, things, but they were they were definitely Darnell kind of quotes. And I thought, yeah, great. I'll put those in. So I put them in and he did them and he was, he was fine. The, the biggest challenge in an adaptation is making the film as good, as well-received as the book was. It hardly ever happens because a, a book is basically a 20-hour experience. And a movie is basically a two-hour experience. Now, movies have certain advantages. Music. Um, the, the ability to people your story in your mind can be an advantage or a disadvantage. Uh, it, but in the movies, you know, you've got an Arnie. Yeah. That's what Arnie looks like. You've got a, a, a Lee. And this is what Lee looks like. And there's no debate. And this was the this was the best-selling book in the world when it came out. Right. In fact, the, the producer told me if everybody who bought a Stephen King book went to this movie and nobody else did, it would be a dismal failure. The, the economics of movie going are so much greater. Um, you can have a a New York Times bestseller by selling 40,000 copies of the book. Yeah. Uh, 40,000 movie tickets ain't nothing. <laughs> right, right. Um, so one of the first chores anybody has to do is decide how am I going to cut this 20-hour monstrosity down to two hours? So you're always looking for things to get rid of. One of the differences between the book and the movie is that in the book, there was a fellow named Roland LeBay, and he owned the car, and he died in the car, and so did his family. We got rid of Roland and gave the car to his brother, George, played by Robert's Blossom, who, if you've, if you've seen um, Home Alone. Yes. If you've seen Home Alone, he's the next door neighbor in Home Alone. And he's the guy who sells the car to Arnie. In the book, Roland LeBay is dead and his rotting corpse continues to ride in the back seat with Arnie and become more and more rotten as it goes along. That's not a bad idea, I guess, but it would have just been done in American Werewolf in London the year before. Oh, yeah. Yes, I remember. Yeah. His best <laughs> friend. Yeah. Griffin Dunn was bit by a vampire or werewolf. Oh, yeah, werewolf. Werewolf, yeah. Griffin Dunn was bit by a werewolf and he kept showing up increasingly rotting. So John rapidly agreed, yeah, that we can just get rid of that whole subplot. That helped a lot. It depends on who you're adapting, whether it makes it easier or harder to adapt. If the author says, and then they sat around talking about the meaning of life. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> then you have to come up with good dialogue about the meaning of life. Uh, ain't going to happen usually. Or, and then they sat around telling joke after joke after joke. Well, jokes don't have a very long shelf life in movies either. By the time anybody has heard the joke, it's probably an old joke. Yeah. But there are, there are things that Stephen King does that are that are very good, and I think it's why he's so popular as a, a as an author. Um, he knows how people talk, and he knows yeah. how to think, and so it makes the dialogue that is there very easy to use. Um, 
Yeah, he has a good, strong grasp of character. That's like his, one of his 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 real strengths as a writer. Had did you meet or talk to him at any time during this process? No, I almost did. Both John and Richard Kobrich, the producer, and I, we were all stymied about who was evil in this. Was the car born bad? Is the car the devil? Or was Roland LeBay the devil? And so Richard called up Stephen because he knew him quite well. And, and Stephen said, gee, I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Stephen. So right around that time, MTV was just starting. And Bad to the Bone played. And I remember my girlfriend at the time said, there's the answer to your story. It's, it's the car is born bad. First line of the song is on the day I was born, the nurses all gathered around. Yeah. They gaze with wide wonder at the joy they had found. Yeah. Anyway, so so from there on, Christine was the devil. Excellent. Yeah. So it actually that song is in the very first scene when the car is rolling down the assembly line and everything is white. All the furies are white. And there's this one red right. fury, which automatically I'm thinking, how did there come to be a red one, <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, you just don't know that it just, it's one of those things you just have to accept. Yeah. Um, and then of course the first kill happens and, you know, we talked about the music, which is inextricable from this film, right? It's uh, it starts with that song and that's all fifties rock and roll throughout the whole thing with one major exception, which is, there's a scene where Christine crashes into the Mobico gas station. Yes. Yeah. The reason for that is we wanted to get um, who do you love? Who yeah. do you love? And I got a rattlesnake for a necktie. Yeah. And yeah. It was a Bo Diddley tune. Yeah. But Bo uh, Diddley didn't want to sell it to the movies. So John, because John um, does his own electronic music, they, they wrote it. They wrote something for that. For those who don't know, John Carpenter's soundtracks are amazing. I was just watching one of his old Halloween films, which he was producer for, Halloween 3, one of the only ones that doesn't have the slasher killer in it, Michael Myers. But the soundtrack is the real highlight, and it's end-to-end John Carpenter's score. His scores are amazing. And this whole movie, you're wondering, where's the John Carpenter music? And then it kicks in in that one scene and it's much more creepy because the whole movie, whenever Christine's about to kill, you hear rock and roll. And then suddenly there it switches up. And suddenly now you've got like that creepy John Carpenter uh, synthesizer score while it's driving down the highway. I know that that's maybe not what was written in, but it came out really well. It did. And you probably know that John has since not since getting the way we all do getting older uh, he's not hired as much to be a director he's gone out and done musical shows around the world uh using using clips from his movies and sound tracks that he has written and he's really having a good, good time doing that apparently um but that was also buddy repperton was the was the 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 baddest bully of all of them. And at the time, he looked kind of like a young John Travolta. He's aged well. Um, William Ostrander is his real name. And he kind of looks like Richard Gere now. And he's a, a, a Democratic politician in a very Republican county in, in California. <laughs> um, but anyway, in the book, Buddy Repperton was run over on an an icy snowy road and what was left when his, his the car ran over him was a puddle of his guts <laughs> somehow wow. it's not as evocative or as cinematic as blowing up a whole gas station and being chased by a car that's totally on fire yeah yeah, and the car overruns him. It's not just a, a glop; it's a flaming pile of his, his corpse. His, yeah. His um, so that was that was just something we did. And again, in the, that's that's not a dig against Stephen King. He didn't need to do that in the book because he has a, a way of of mesmerizing you 
with even though it it only looks like a glop <laughs> um, yeah he has a way with words yeah well yeah it's i it, i mean it's a really great visual and uh, this brings me back to something i wanted to talk about if we go all the way back this thing opens in detroit but then it moves to northern california a small town which you know doesn't have snowy uh winter scenes and i thought that was kind of interesting because most of Stephen King's stuff is set in New England, um, that this one's in Northern California. You said a little bit about this before. It was originally supposed to be in Pittsburgh or something. Yeah, or somewhere in Pennsylvania. Yeah. There's something called, I don't, I don't even know where it is, but there's, I think we even used the, the dialogue still, something about the orange belt. And I think the orange, if you lived wherever that is in Pennsylvania, you would know where that is. We, we to to most of us in the audience, it's just words. We didn't, yeah. we didn't know where it was, but we yeah. Yeah, that was an in, in intentional not to shoot it in snow. First of all, it's a real pain to shoot in snow, and it is true that a lot of movies that are shot in snow lose money. We have to make a disclaimer here that that like what kicked off this feeding frenzy for King properties was the success of The Shining. The Shining takes place in the snow, you know, like right, at least right, a big chunk right. of it does. Another death that I feel proud of this because I invented this one. <laughs> Moochie Welsh was one of the, the underlings of the villains. And I forget how he dies in the, in the book, but it was not particularly colorful. In the movie, he runs into a foreclosing area and the foreclosing area is narrower than Christine. So Christine pulls up and is overlapping by about three or four inches on each side. Can't possibly get in. And so Moochie suddenly he pulls out his switchblade and he, he's, you know, he dares Christine and Christine guns it. And we see the metal being pulled back as the car just, and the, the tires are smoking and the car goes right in and cuts Moochie in half. Yeah. And Malcolm the Denar was the, uh, was Moochie. Whenever I see him, he says, why didn't I just jump on the hood? <laughs> everybody <laughs> asked me why did you jump on the hood and my answer is well because that wasn't in the script <laughs> <laughs> well moochie wasn't too bright anyway so <laughs> <laughs> and then an, another another discrepancy in the way people died was uh darnell uh, i believe in in the in the book darnell was chased upstairs in his house by the car and i just thought that that's going to look silly having a car in the house going up the stairs after somebody. So we, we have him uh, crushed to death behind the steering wheel. Now, there, some people say, well, why would a man get into a hot car? Because it, it had just been steaming. It had just finished running over Buddy Reperton and it was, now it's going back to repair itself. And Darnell sees it and he thinks, you know, some wise guy kid is in the car. So he goes goes in and he sits there. And all I can say is maybe he got mesmerized. You know, maybe he just got magically seduced into sitting there. And then the steering wheel starts moving closer and closer. The, the, the seat starts. The seat, yeah. And he, he dies that way. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't even think about that at the time, but yeah, <laughs> it is uh it is a little question there. So the you know, when I watched this, the two things that struck me out in terms of 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 like cost or whatever is um of course the the licensing for all the music, but also I, I imagine that car guys love this film because not only do you have the Plymouth Fury, but You've got all these other great cars, like um, Arnie's friend, played by uh, John Dennis. Yeah, what did he have? Was it a? He had like a muscle car, like a um, Dodge Charger. You yeah. know. Yeah. And then um, on top of that, and then like Darnell had a Cadillac, which right. automatically, in my mind, 
threw me back to he's kind of gangsterish already so it reminded me of stephen king's uh dolan's cadillac short story um and then uh you know um rudolph junkins played by harry dean stanton has another car i forget what it was was it uh it was another plymouth i think yeah and then there was but i I forgot there was a camaro in this a classic camaro there there are just a lot of really notable cars throughout and i was wondering like maybe they they had some sort of deal you know with car companies or something i don't know um i'm not sure i'm sure there's an easy answer to that but i don't know what it is um one thing though that happened this had nothing to do with, with the script when the film was finished we did not have the scene where the car was rebuilding itself on screen and john and richard looked at it and thought there's there's something missing here i mean what i did was you know arnie would look at the engine and it would all it was all beat to shred you know, shredded up and he'd look away and then he'd come back and, and it was starting to repair itself. So you, you, any repair you saw, you didn't see happen. You saw the result of it. Well, John decided to use what I guess is called the poor man's uh, reverse. They, they put the camera upside down. They, they made rubber models of different parts of the car, like the fender, things at the mirror, things that had to be fixed. They were held back by ropes. So they were held in their wrinkled position. And uh-huh. slowly the special effects people let them out and they would pop into place. So that that showed visually what was going on. Then what they did was they used special effects sound to show to hear metal uncrinkling. Yeah. And they they sold it. And so when Arnie says, go ahead, show me the car, they they do that little thing. And that's not CGI. It's not computer graphics. You know, when I saw that scene, I'm like, okay, did they take it and like demolish it and then run the film backwards? You know, but then I was thinking, you know, it would have been a lot more Harryhausen herky jerky if they had done that, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, and and in fact, um, they have been talking for the last four or five years about doing a, a remake of Christine. And I had mixed feelings about it. Of course, my first feeling was, oh, good, I'm going to get some more residuals. And then I realized, no, Christine is Stephen King's book. It's not my book. Right. Um, and then my fear was, I wonder if they're going to do it right. because. To me, the reason that Christine has succeeded, and Christine is one of those movies, it did okay, but not great when it came out, but it has grown. I mean, it's there are huge fan clubs of both for the car and for the movie and for the book. Yeah, no, I was going to say Blumhouse, uh, which has emerged as sort of the horror film studio of the 2010s, 2020s, has it on schedule for... Uh, 2023 release which would be the 40th anniversary so it yeah. looks like it's getting the green light we'll see what well, happens if it if it is that's contrary to what i've heard like in the last month or so which was that Stephen didn't like the script and if Stephen doesn't like the script it's kind of dead yeah but and but maybe they'll fix the script what i worried about though was that now cgi com- computer graphics imagery is everywhere and it's kind of a cliche in fact i know people who they look at it and they go, oh that's really poor cgi i i don't have that kind of an eye but some people i know do have that kind oh, of. oh we've done that on this podcast many times yeah um, <laughs> and what i find really works best about that film is the the sincerity of the acting i mean and and part of this i would say for better or worse one of my hangups is I try for credibility. Well, how do you be credible about a killer car movie? <laughs> but I, I tried to be. And the way I tried is, okay, you, you can either wink at the camera and do it like Burt Reynolds kind of does a lot in, in some of his movies. Isn't this funny what we're doing here? Or you can play it straight. And they all played it straight. Yeah. 
and you know what would happen if your boyfriend really did start getting taken over by a car what would happen if your car starts repairing itself and just people acted the way people would act if that unbelievable thing happened one of my first awarenesses of that years later was in um vince gilligan's the x-files he had Mulder and scully uh, fox Mulder was an agent who who believed in extraterrestrials and scully was a disbeliever and very skeptical and what's good about that is there's somebody for everybody in the audience the yeah. people who who think oh this would never happen they agree with with uh, scully and the people who want to believe believe with Mulder. so it, it's it's nice to have that kind of thing yeah there. yeah that's what i liked about not to sidetrack us to a different stephen king movie for for long here but that's what i liked about kubrick's the shining uh, we, we, hit, we have this great debate on the show a lot like which is what's the scariest horror movie of all time and a lot of people say the exorcist and yeah, I, I say the shining and the reason i say the shining over the exorcist is the exorcist is very much you got to believe you got to buy into the concept of the, the demonic possession and all of that in the shining you don't have to believe that the that he's possessed by the house or the the, the hotel or anything like that you just have to believe that he's crazy you know right. and like as, yeah as a writer i found that the scariest thing this is about a writer going insane yeah it's not it's not about a crazy person it's well it's not about a uh, an abnormal person it's about a, a writer maybe that means you're an abnormal person <laughs> so um, i often tell people that horror movies aren't about monsters they're about people so it's if the people this is how like the actors can sell it whatever the concept killer car Godzilla, whatever the thing is, if the actors take it seriously, people are yeah. going to believe it, you know? Well, the reason that I think the, 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 the my scariest moment, I think, in movie going was in The Exorcist, but it's not when the little girl's head goes around or when pea soup gets, you know, barfed out of her mouth. I mean, that's all special effects. And you're sitting there going, oh, I wonder how they did that. It, it was when she came down the stairs in her nightgown and she talks to the man playing the piano who's a an astronaut who's going up into space next week and she says you're going to die up there or something like that and then <laughs> she pees on the rug right well, peeing on the rug doesn't scare you but that combination of the weirdness of that moment was i mean that's to yeah. me that's very chilling yeah the thing about the shining you probably know stephen king hated the shining yeah yeah and he actually he hated it enough to do his own stephen king's the shining as a six-hour miniseries using one of the guys from oh, what was the show it was about the, those two guys who owned an airplane service yeah wings uh yeah was it wings uh, i think it was yeah 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 um i happened to like i liked kubrick's the shining Oh yeah. Uh, so the writer isn't always right. I hate to say right. it, but so, sometimes, sometimes the, the, the director like really, and I think the shining is excellent. And I have a lot of respect for Stephen King. I know why he doesn't like the shining. It takes great liberties with the novel, but to bring us back to Christine, you had mentioned a few minutes ago, how Christine, the car has a bit of a fan club. And I wanted to mention that Christine makes another on-screen appearance a couple of years later in the film cat's eye. Oh. Cat's eye, I think was Stephen King's own. Uh, he wrote the screenplay. It's an anthology where you're following a cat from story to story. And the cat is originally, it's like chased by a rabid, St. Bernard, which is a reference to Cujo, and it's crossing right. the street, and this red Plymouth Fury almost runs the them <laughs> down. And yeah. but it's horrible because like the I, I don't know if like the the directors or whoever didn't think people would know what Christine was, because what other red Plymouth Fury are you gonna confuse it with? But they put a bumper sticker on the back that's like, I'm bad, I'm evil, you know, oh, I'm Christine, yeah. you know, and I'm like you didn't really need to do that. We knew what, you know, and plus a bumper sticker on Christine. That's just terrible. You know, that's but, like adding a narration. It's, uh, 
Yeah, it was like really a Vegas rim shot. You know, I was like, oh, <laughs> we did not need yeah. that. You know, there's another movie called Smothered uh, that was directed by one of the Dukes of Hazard, John Schneider. And it's um, I won't go into what Smothered is about, except that it, it's about pe people who had been famous in various um, horror movies and they all get invited to this one place. And they all start disappearing. And and what happens is I, th I think it's uh, Malcolm, uh, you know, Moochie, Moochie Welch and Christine get to go. Oh. To this. So if you ever get a chance to see Smothered, I mean, it's a laugh. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do it on the show. So how many Christines are left? Do you know? I don't know. I remember. I think they used about twenty-two in the making of Christine. And there are people who are really affronted that so many cars were destroyed, destroyed. yeah but they had they had one they cut the front of the car off so they could mount cameras and they had one where they cut the rear of the car off so they could mount cameras they had one that could run on the front of a truck like a, a big mac truck um but that was so scary that they ended up not using it it was because the the actors were afraid that they might hit a bump and and all die so they didn't use that there were two what they called pristine Christines. And one was, I think Groucho Marx wrote it in a, in a parade at one point. Um, I had the chance to buy a Christine. Oh, yeah? I'm so ashamed of myself that I didn't buy it. I was driving by a dealership, a Plymouth dealership in about 1985 in Maine. And there was a Christine done with the right color scheme and everything. And I think they wanted $12,500 for it. And I, in my infinite wisdom, knew, oh, but those were push-button transmissions. They're a pain. I'm not going to you know, borrow trouble. So I, I, I didn't even think about it beyond that. Well, a couple of years later, I was getting my car fixed. And the guy who owned Northern Motorsports said, you know, if you had bought that, it would be worth a quarter million dollars today. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have those moments. But yeah, I mean, having worked on the film, just owning a Christine would be really cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I am friends with a guy now who, who had nothing to do with the making of the film, but he has put about a, a quarter million dollars into making a Christine He's an EMT by training, and he still does that. But he goes off on these these uh, horror weekends and brings his car. And he's got the car fixed up so it, it's computerized, so the radio will glow green. It will it will fill up with smoke. It'll bounce. Uh, the lights will come on. It's I would like to see that. I'm sure it's quite the hit. <laughs> We talked about how there were multiple Christines. I wanted to say there's also multiple Lees. Did you know that? Lee Cabot, which is yes, Alexandra Paul. She yeah. she's she has a twin sister, right? Who like yeah, if you get the the uh, collector's edition, whatever it's called, is uh, the uh, special collector's edition, she tells the anecdote about one time how she dressed her sister up as herself and John Carpenter didn't know it, but he was he was trying to direct her sister. And something was not right. And there's a, a picture of him and he he just looks like he's he's looking at like children of the damned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. All right. So uh, to wrap up here, has there been anything since the time of Christine, you know, being released in the 80s and now? Was there ever a time where Christine uh, came back? Uh, it was a like big deal. Like, did, did it? Was there a, a particular year where this was a big thing? Like maybe an anniversary or something? Well, yeah, it was. I think 2015. They finally did a Blu-ray rendition of Christine. Um, I think it was like 33 or 34 years after the the movie came out, and I didn't. You don't think about something you did 30 years ago very often. So I wasn't thinking about it. However, I was watching on a regular basis then um, The Walking Dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I went was out. Was that that long ago? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I went out to, to uh, Burbank 
to a little store called Dark Delicacies. In fact, I thought it was like, oh, they sell chocolate there or something. No, it's 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 all it's a horror store. They sell um, um, mannequins and they sell books and they sell posters and movies. Um, and we had a, a signing of about thirty or forty of us working on the crew and the cast who were there. And there were about 450 people lined up. And because I had just been watching um, The Walking Dead, I kind of felt like, oh, here, here's where they all went. <laughs> They're here in line. <laughs> and I met somebody who has seen the movie 300 times. And I was wow. kind of glad when I didn't have to keep talking to that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I do remember that when Harry Dean Stanton died, the way I found out about it, um, it, there was a post on Facebook by Stephen King saying, you know, R.I.P. Harry, uh, you had the best line in the movie. And the line that he was quoting actually wasn't Harry Dean Stanton's line. It was Robert, Robert's Blossom's line. He's the guy who sold the car. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm selling this shithole and getting me a condo. And I made a note to myself because it was like one in the morning when I saw this and I thought, well, in the morning I'll, I'll, I'll correct Stephen. And in the morning I, I turned it on and, and it had already been erased. He'd been taken, he'd taken off the post. But for me to hear Stephen King say that the best line in the movie was not written by him was, you know. Yeah. That's, I mean, of course, that's great. Two people in the world who know that, you know, now they're like, your audience knows it, <laughs> but yes, yes. Well, I'll uh, publish this anywhere. We're going to going to repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up unless there's anything else you want to leave us with. I, I I I guess I would say, be careful what you write, because sometimes it hangs around. I didn't know this was going to hang around, and there are people who are quoting Christine all the time i oh, mean yeah. I, I think there are more erudite things that i've written and you know they're probably never quoted but um it's okay yeah and it's kind of fun to, to, to see that yeah okay well uh bill thanks for being with us and um i want to remind everyone that if you want to write to us we are gc8 podcast that's letter g letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric signing off. I said Joanna's not here. I didn't tell you why Rosie's not here today. In the pre-show, we were talking earlier in the week, and I'm like, so we're going to be uh, recording this, uh, you know, Christine episode. So we start talking about it, and she's talking about the gratuitous nudity, teenage nudity. And I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't remember that, you know? And then, and then at some point, and then at some point she mentions um, Sissy Spacek. And I'm like, oh. did you watch Carrie? And she watched Carrie, not Christine. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you're in timeout for this one. <laughs> <laughs>